The truth is I'm not a big believer in the build to sell model. Okay. Like I, I think when founders build to sell, it's almost like you miss the fact that really what you're there to build is something valuable. And if you can't build something that's independently valuable, well, you're taking a lot of risk there that someone else is going to solve that problem because in general, people don't run businesses that aren't self-sustainable. I mean, even Stanford, you know, it's a nonprofit university, et cetera, even their organizations, they try to make them self-sustaining. And so in general, with founders, I tend to advise them fundamentally that you should always be building to build a sustainable organization. Well, I'm excited to welcome to the show, Adam Nash. How are we doing? Uh, hey, uh, great to be here. I know we've got, uh, uh, you and I were talking, you know, before jumping on the show, we've got an uh, array of of topics that I personally know a lot of our listeners will gain a lot of value from and, you know, be interested in hearing more about from your early days, you know, in your own uh, entrepreneurial journey and kind of working in the world of tech in Silicon Valley with eBay and LinkedIn and Wealthfront, Apple, um, but then obviously you've got some very uh, unique perspectives and insights that you've gained by being on the board of many big companies and organizations. I know you play and dabble in uh, crypto a little bit. Obviously, AI is a very interesting topic right now. So I think we have a little bit of ground to cover in today's episode. But that being said, for those that don't know who you are and where your journey began and maybe catching us up with you know, uh, a quick insight into where, you know, we find you today when people say, who is Adam Nash? What do you say? Oh, I mean, uh, sometimes I think, you know, I always joke about this when I was running a product at LinkedIn, I was always joke about that in different parts of your life, your reputation is different, right? So, you know, right now people know me as the co-founder and CEO of Daffy. Um, but you know, the students at Stanford know me as, you know, the lecturer that teaches personal finance for engineers, but you know, at the kids' little league game, I'm just like Jacob's dad or Jordan's <laughs> dad, right? Like I have four yep. kids. So, um, but no, I'm happy. I mean, my background in some ways, it's a very normal Silicon Valley story. I know Silicon Valley is kind of sensationalized, but, right. you know, uh, my parents are both doctors. I grew up in Silicon Valley, was literally born in Stanford Hospital, um, developed a real passion for finding ways that technology can help people with their problems, became very focused on kind of how humans and technology work together. Um, back then, that was called human-computer interaction, although now they just talk about design. And it led me to kind of this whirlwind of, of career experiences, right? I've, I've worked, I started, I was an intern at NASA. I was, I thought I was joining Next, um, but it turned out Next got bought by Apple or Apple got bought by Next. I'm still not sure, but I got to be there when Steve Jobs came back. I was like 22. And then I went through this career. I, I went to a startup that went public in the 90s. Um, I was in venture capital for a while. Um, did great runs at eBay in the Web 1.0 era after the bubble burst, and then LinkedIn, you know, ran product there through the IPO, and then was fortunate enough to be CEO of Wealthfront for four years, building out this new category of fintech. Um, now I'm doing Daffy, which is focused on giving and helping people give. But the common theme for me is this idea that technology itself is just a tool. It's a platform. Um, but it's a very powerful platform. I'm naturally an optimist. I think that we are still in the early days of figuring out all the different ways that we can do things better. Mm. And so I just love taking on problems where you identify something that's important to people. And then you ask this question, hey, with all this great technology, how can we make this 10 times better, 100 times better, fundamentally better? Um, and that's what I spent my career on. 
Amazing. Now, would would you classify yourself as an entrepreneur, as an intrapreneur, as I know you're an angel investor, you're a business like what what would you classify yourself as? You know, um it's funny you go through these different labels. In, in tech, uh, I tend to describe myself as as a product leader uh, okay. because product is kind of where it all comes together for me, the technology, the the marketing, the the, the people, um the the design, all those pieces you have to put together. Uh, but it's funny, I, I, when it comes to entrepreneurship, um, I've actually done both. Um, I've had this fortunate thing where I've worked at some of the largest companies in the world mm-hmm. um, and had to build new services and new products. And in those companies, I tended very much to be the innovator, the like, why can't we do it differently? Why can't we build something new? That's why you see a lot of patent work from me at, 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 in my early career at eBay and LinkedIn when we were figuring out things like search and, and shopping, et cetera. But um, in the end, I, I think that entrepreneurship, starting a company, being a founder is such a unique thing. I always had a lot of humility around it as an investor because I've invested now in over 130 different companies. Um, and so I've seen a lot of great founders do a lot of great things. But before Daffy, I hadn't done it myself. And so there's always this funny thing in the industry, all these investors giving advice on things that they haven't exactly done themselves. Yeah. Um, but I, in the end, I like to think of myself as a builder. Who, who, who looks at the world and says, hey, why can't something new be here? And then instead of just talking about it, you go do it. And so whether you do that at a big company, whether you do that on your own in your personal life, whether you do that as a founder of a startup, I think the real question is like, I think there is this difference between talking about things versus doing things. And I've always liked to think of myself as someone who does things. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers customers, leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this deep sales and LinkedIn has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn sales navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn sales navigator and get a 60 day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60 day free trial. Let LinkedIn sales navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot of people who, as you say, right, the audio doesn't always match the video, right? What they say isn't always how they live or act or what they do. Um, and that congruence, I think, obviously creates a lot of success and opportunity and, and fulfillment for people when that audio and the video is is aligned. For you, when you were first kind of getting um, into the world of you know business, entrepreneurship, you know, what were some of the the early lessons that, you know, in hindsight, now looking back, you learned that were really beneficial for you that really still apply at 
every level that you've experienced that maybe early entrepreneurs and business owners, you know, don't necessarily need to learn by feeling their way forward that you might be able to share from your own experiences? Oh, there's quite a few. And I, I feel so fortunate. You know, it's very funny when you look with hindsight. I mean, I didn't think when I joined Apple and Steve was coming back, like, believe me, there was no one at that time that was like, you know, this is going to be the first $3 trillion company. Right. <laughs> I mean, when I was at Apple, Apple, everyone's talking about it going bankrupt. Sun was going to buy the company and actually balked because the price was too high. I think it was a couple billion dollars, right? Like it was just when I, I yeah, so you never really know the future. And I think that the biggest lesson I internalized early in technology is just that the game keeps going and it always changes, right? Yeah. And, and so a lot of it is about playing the game um, rather than trying to win every match, et cetera. You're always learning and growing. But I was lucky to be exposed to some great thinkers along the way. So like, you know, yeah, I was there when Steve gave the kind of comeback speech at Apple. I wrote about it when he passed away. Um, you know, in my graduate program at Stanford, like Reed Hastings was just a grad student who was just about six or seven years ahead of me and started this other company. But to hear him talk about how he thought about building businesses how how unfair is that? You know, meeting people like Reed Hoffman, um, you know, other great founders, amazing business school. I got to work with Clay Christensen, learn from him, Innovator's Dilemma. What I loved about Clay, and he was a great man. He, he's passed away now. But his um, the biggest lesson I internalized from him was this idea of don't ever assume that your competition isn't filled with smart people who think mm. that they're doing the right thing and likely have more resources than you. You have to think deeply about your customers and who 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 their system is designed to serve and who it isn't right for. And that's where you find real opportunity. But um, I mean, I think in general these days as an investor, what I tell most founders is the most important piece of advice is just to remember that building businesses is hard. Building yeah. products is hard. Building technology is hard. And you know, there's a lot of talk about loving what you do. Um, I, I think that's a funny word. Love's a funny word, and it means a lot of different things in different contexts. But for me, this alignment, I call it kind of founder product fit. But you know, if you're signing up to build a business, to build a company, it can't just be, in my view, to make money. There's a lot of ways to make money. Mm -hmm. Right? Like you make money investing, you can make yep. money lending, you can make money a lot. And by the way, some of them are a lot easier than building businesses and products. A lot of them are. And so I tend to pushing more towards belief. You have to believe that this is genuinely a good thing that you're doing. Like maybe it's good for you and your family. Maybe it's good for, for your customers, good for the world, but you have to really believe this is a problem worth solving because it's going to be hard at times. Yeah. And if you don't believe it's a problem worth solving, if you just thought this was an easy way to make money, well, I can solve that for you right now. It's not an easy way to make money. There's no easy way to make money, not, not over the long term. Um, and actually that kind I think that got indoctrinated me by my parents early, mm. my grandparents. Um, my grandfather had been the first successful real businessman in the family. Um, what did he do? Alignment, I still give that advice today is that people really, that founders, people run business, really make sure that they're aligned, that they are solving a problem that is worth solving. And if it isn't, go find a problem that is worth solving. Mm. Um, and, and, and put your energy towards that. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, in the world of social media and technology now, you know, uh, entrepreneurship and business ownership has, you know, somewhat kind of been romanticized a little bit and this, you know, ease and access to it. But what actually 
is required to succeed at a really high level, there sometimes is that disconnect. What do you say to those struggling early stage entrepreneurs or maybe the business owners that just feel like they're stuck, they're really self-employed for themselves, not really running a real business? How do you break through that ceiling? Well, I think I think that's really hard. Um, and like I said, I think that is the nature of the business. Um, you know, uh, you know, Howard Marks is a great investor, but you know, one of the things that he put out there's this framework, it's now become a staple in venture capital, this idea that the best opportunities have to be contrarian, mm. but also have to be right. Mm. And, and that's hard because it turns out conventional wisdom, um, albeit as annoying as it is sometimes, conventional wisdom is mostly right. Like that's why it's conventional right. like in most cases. And so people seem to think that these days that just being a contrarian automatically gets you to success. And, and it, it doesn't actually. In fact, most likely it doesn't lead to success because to be a contrarian, you're bucking the crowd. The crowd I mean, it depends what you think of humanity and that sort of thing. But if, if you believe that people in general are using all their efforts to try and find the best path to find success for themselves and their families and the things they believe in, um, finding a contrarian idea that's also correct, that is where the huge opportunity is. That's where you get these giant outcomes in venture capital. And it's also where you see small businesses phenomenally succeed in communities. Like, why haven't we ever had something like this? Mm -hmm. And the answer is usually, oh, that didn't work here 20 years ago, or that never works, or that won't work here, or people are different. And sometimes you have to be the person saying, no, I can make this work here. But you have to have humility going into it. It is hard. And so I, I usually, when I talk to founders or people building small businesses, I, you know, there's a little bit of just the empathy and just the 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 acknowledgement. You're not crazy. You're not doing it wrong. Um, this is hard. Yeah. Um, but also to, to recognize that not all ideas are going to work. In fact, most of them won't. Right. And so I always encourage founders to have a hypothesis going in. Right. I'm a science guy. Like I'm an engineer. So I always like scientific thinking. You have an hypothesis. Starting a company is a hypothesis. It, yeah. it says like I believe that there's a a self sustaining profitable company that doesn't exist today, but could exist here. You have that theory. And there's so many things you have to get right, like to get it, like, how am I going to acquire customers? What am I going to do for them? How is it going to be profitable? All these different pieces, business model, et cetera. And any step of the way, any of those questions come back false. Maybe the whole hypothesis is wrong. I mean, in my world of tech startups, most startups don't succeed. Right. Yeah. Like even the best investors in the world. I was an EIR at Greylock Partners, one of the best venture capital firms in the world ever. And yet, if you looked at their funds, most of the companies in their funds don't return the capital on, on the money invested. Right. Dollar in did not get you a dollar out. But that doesn't matter because the ones that they do invest in that work return so much. Right. Like it, 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 you know, that, that, that pays for everything and then some. Right. And, you know, the venture capitalists aren't actually hurting in terms of lifestyle. So yeah. it, it clearly works for them. So, you know, sometimes the best advice to a founder is just to say, like, listen, it's hard. You have these decisions to make, but you always have agency. Right. Like life is long. Life is more than any one business, any one company. I mean, this is what I internalize in Silicon Valley is that, you know, technologies come and go. Great companies come and go. Great mm -hmm. places to work, et cetera. Um, the thing that is durable uh, is us. It, it, it's people. Um, and even us, we we have limited time, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so encouraging people to always be brutally honest. You know, what is the biggest problem you have? Go tackle it. What is the biggest question you have on the future of your business, that hypothesis? If you don't have an answer to that question, how are you going to get an answer to that question? 
And if the answer is like, well, I'm going to grind it out for five years to see if this works. Well, that's an answer. That may not be the best answer. Right. Um, but be intentional about what you're doing. Um, it's in all of our power. You know, no matter how much the world around us changes or does things, we always have the power to wake up in the morning and say, this is what, this is the hand of cards I've been dealt. How am I going to play it? And you play it the best you can. And as an investor and venture capitalist in a lot of different opportunities, what is it that you look at being that you've seen an array of businesses that have failed, an array of businesses that have succeeded, you know, that have gone full circle? You sit on the board of many of these things. What common denominators are you looking for? Maybe how are you approaching the analysis of what you believe has maybe some legs behind it or some validity to it or that you want to, you know, transact and exchange some equity into in order to see, you know, how those things play out? Yeah, I'm happy to answer, but I do want to qualify the answer by saying that, you know, the most important thing I internalized about being a successful investor from some of the best investors in the business, great investors know what they know but they also know what they don't know. Mm. They don't look for any great business. There's a certain type of business that they have some expertise or insight on, and they focus their energy on businesses they understand. I mean, even Warren Buffett is very famous for, for talking about this. And so I know what I know. What I know are a very small sliver of businesses, which are businesses that are designed to grow huge, right? What does it take to take nothing and turn it into a billion dollar business in a decade, right? That's not mm -hmm. a normal thing. That's not how most businesses run. Um, and I know software and related businesses, you know, whether that's, you know, consumer software, marketplaces, SaaS, but there's some commonality to the issues that you run into with software businesses, but also the economics in the end, right? Software is blessed by this one basic fact that we discovered over 50 years ago, which is that once you get the software right, Adding a second consumer to that software, a third user, a fourth user, costs almost nothing. And yeah. so as long as you have good economics for each customer at scale, you can have a great business. And so when I meet with founders, mostly my filters, I look for certain things, but it's based on that. If they're not in that bucket, if they're not trying to build a venture class business in one of the areas I focus in, it's hard for me to get conviction because it's hard for me to get the confidence that I even know what I'm doing yeah. <laughs> to invest or to be helpful. But um, I look for founder product fit. What I mean is I, I don't look for founders where it's like, oh, I think I found a great way to make money. There's a lot of arbitrage opportunities out there. There's a right. lot of ways to make money investing or seeing something as a good deal. That's just not what I'm focused on, right? I don't think that's how I make my money. I don't think that builds that type of company. Um, I spend a lot of time in fintech. In, when I, you're investing in financial services and products, I like to get to the thing, does this product really generate value for the customer and how? Right. I, I see so many people building products where they think it's cool or there's some new trend. Hey, everyone's doing this. I'm going to use AI to do this. But how does it really generate value? Mm -hmm. Right. LinkedIn, I, I tell you, I was very effusive about LinkedIn in the early days. I would talk about how in the modern world, with modern careers, what you have is your reputation and your relationships. But where's the platform for a normal person to manage that? It has to exist. That, that's why I thought LinkedIn had to exist. There had to be a place where people could go and invest in their own reputation and their relationships. That wasn't something just for Fortune 500 executives. That was something that everyone could benefit from. But you have to know where your value comes from because um, that lets you focus on it because you can't do everything. Starting, right. you can only focus on small things. And then lastly, when it comes to characteristics for people, um, I really have to understand who the customer is that they're going after in that segment. 
And I have to believe that that's a big enough area and a big enough problem to build a significant business. And that that also ties to the business model, but it, it, it ties to distribution as well. Like, how are you going to reach these people? The big guys already have all the distribution, right? Like when I'm doing Wealthfront, you know, like Schwab already spent time building out hundreds of branches. So did Fidelity. Vanguard didn't build out branches, but there are tens of millions of people out there who already own Vanguard funds, right? Vanguard rolls out a new product. They just email everyone who's already a Vanguard customer. And they'll probably listen because they're already Vanguard customers. As a startup, you have to have some new idea about how to reach this audience that is underserved by current solutions, that isn't the best customer of the incumbents. But then you have to have a way to reach them. And so usually with founders, I want to hear that they've put thought into that. If when I meet with them, they haven't given that thought, I'll talk to them a little bit, but I'll say, like, I'm not ready to invest, you know, come back to me. It almost disqualifies the opportunity if that box isn't checked for you. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the what I internalize from a lot of investors is that, you know, you can't really predict the future. There's all these different theories about I mean, I think Doug Leone back in the day used to talk about markets, um, you know, being like waves. Right. And, 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 you know, when you back founders and companies, you're really backing the founder. And the company is the surfboard, and you're, you're betting that they're going to catch that wave and, and kind of ride it through and build a great company. Um, you know, for me, I simplify that just to looking at the people. In the end, all these different questions you ask is really because as a small investor, you have no control over that business, almost mm-hmm. nothing. I mean, some influence, right? Because they will remember, founders do remember who was with them in the early days when it didn't make sense, you know, mm-hmm. when, when it wasn't smart to write the check. And so you do have a relationship, you do have advice, um, but you really don't have control. So in the end, it is a trust thing. And so a lot of the process in the beginning is, do I believe that this founder is going to go off and do the things that they need to do to be successful? And am I okay with the way they're thinking about things? Like, do, do I think they're great? And that's led me to back some amazing founders um, who built companies I could never build. Back founders who are very different people than me, very different capabilities, um, but had that insight, you know, had that, had those things worked out. And it's been wonderful. Um, even when startups don't work out, actually, I, I enjoy the process because I learn something from almost every founder I work with. I love that. Now, as you have had some successful exits, are you consistently redeploying equity all back into venture capital? Or are you going more of a holistic approach with your own investment portfolio? What is your personal investment thesis in, in you know, portfolio look like? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, it turns out like in some ways, this, this may not be best for everyone listening. I apologize in advance, but I'm a little boring when it comes to these things, right? I do, I do teach a class on, on personal finance at Stanford. I've done it for six years. Um, but I do think you have to think about investing holistically. Um, and it actually doesn't even start with investing. It actually starts with your goals. It actually starts with the life you're trying to build. What life do you want to have? Like mm-hmm. people always look at things like risk and they say, well, I'll take risk if there's like, you know, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, I'll take the risk. Um, and it's easy to say, but that may not actually be the life you want, right? Like you have your kids in school, you want to send them to, you want to be able to put them in after school sports if that's what they want to do. You want to send them to the school that they want to go to. Um, you know, if, if, you know, if you have family, you know, siblings, cousins, et cetera, like there may be people who depend on you. Um, it may not, you may not love the ups and downs, right? Like, you know, when you invest in some of these high growth, high risk areas, sometimes you're locked up for a decade. I mean, when you invest in a startup, you should not be expecting to see money for 10 years. 
So you have to be methodical. So I tend to look at things as one, what's my life or the goals? I actually use mental accounting, the behavioral finance technique. I actually will label money and put money aside for things that I don't want to risk. So for example, I was very stressed out just the way I was brought up about being able to pay for college for my kids. When LinkedIn went public, one of the first things I did was made sure that the college savings for the kids were all taken care of. Love it. Because if the kids are taken care of, then I can take more risk. I can be more adventurous because I can be more flexible because those dependencies, um, it's called in, in academia, it's called risk mitigation, right? It's like identify the risks that you're most afraid of and eliminate them so that you can take the other risks that actually don't rub you the wrong way, that, that, that don't stress you out. But yeah, so when it comes to my investments, I do think of it as an overall portfolio. So overall portfolio is very boring. Diversified mix of low-cost index funds across asset classes. That math has been known for a long time. It sounds boring, but it turns out boring is good in this case, right? Yes. Like you, most of us are going to make our money doing what we do, right? Lawyers make money being lawyers and doctors make money being doctors, engineers being engineers. You're a small business owner. You make money running your small business. You're not making it by like picking the next stock, not as a, a great investor. So I like the bulk of the portfolio there. But if you want, I mean, angel investing, private equity is an asset class too. And it's not unreasonable to allocate five or 10% of your overall investments to it. I mean, people are into real estate. I think about the same way as well, right? You don't want all your money in real estate, or some people do, but I would, I, I'm more measured, diversified. But if you want to sit, treat that as an asset class and then say, okay, with 10% of my money, I'm going to invest in startups, can I do that effectively? Do I have access to the best founders and startups? Why would they take money from me? Right. Um, you have to answer all these questions. But most of my activity is, is as an individual angel investor. I am an LP in a few higher quality venture funds. Okay. But the problem with venture funds is, uh, to be honest, is that most of them, well, most of them don't beat the average. And uh, the average isn't that great. Yeah. Um, the truth is venture capital is one of these areas where the very best venture capital firms and funds do phenomenally well. But the average is not that exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people lose money chasing this dream of backing the next Google or the next Facebook or the, whatever the next hot company is that, that people want to be in. Um, and they don't realize that actually most of the story is not that. Most of the story is, is companies struggling for a long time. Uh, most of it is not you know, getting diluted out. So even though you were right, you kind of don't end up making money. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out it's not. There, there is no easy way to make money. Um, but when I found great investors, and I've been fortunate enough to form a relationship and I can invest with them and I see what they do, um, I, I've put money into a few funds as well. So talk a little bit about why has it worked for you when it doesn't work for most? Well, we're, we'll, we'll ignore the obvious, where, which is like, you know, like I've, I've been fortunate enough to be, to just, you know, I didn't pick where I was born. I would say proximity um, is, is a part of it, right? But, but there, getting there's, back some, to you. there's some other aspects to it that I'm going to say. You've connected dots along the way that maybe others in proximity in the same environment, location, region, maybe having access, haven't seen as similar success as you have. Well, that's right. And I, I think that this is the problem. Um, there's that old saying, um, which gets misattributed all the time, that, you know, what's the difference between theory and practice? Mm -hmm. Well, in theory, there is no difference, but in practice, there is. Mm. Um, and, and I do think that I'm, I'm probably old-fashioned when it comes to Silicon Valley about the idea that investors are the most successful and the most valuable when they actually have relevant experience, right? Mm. I, I, don't, I didn't just read about computer science or engineering or new trends. Like I actually studied these things. I, I dedicated years of my life to understanding the technology, building things, 
I've spent my career, um, I've done multiple roles. I've been the engineer writing the code. I've been the designer going through the iteration of designing the product. I've been the product manager on the hook for the success or failure of the product. Um, and now I've been a CEO, right, multiple times and, and, and been an executive, both at large companies and small ones. So that means there's a range of situations, environments with people, with process, with product, where I'm not just talking about theory, I'm talking about real things that happened in practice. And then to add to it, I've actually been at some companies that have been phenomenally successful. And the, the advantage of, of being at companies in the early days who turn out to be successful is what you really learn is that they do a phenomenal number of things wrong. Mm. So it's not like school. Like you can go to a startup. I mean, I, I don't even want to embarrass anyone, but like LinkedIn did a lot of things wrong in the early days. Um, if anyone with a business school degree who had worked at a high quality company would have come in the early days and like, this is chaos. This is crazy. Like you have like what you just gave a 24 year old responsible for that. That's like a multi-million dollar, like all just all this stuff, but, um, that they do. But what you learn is the most important lesson is that those things they did wrong weren't blocking factors for them being successful. Mm. And it turns out building a business is less about knowing what the right things are to do and more about the phasing. What problems to solve first, then second, then third. There's a thousand problems you have to solve to build a right. company, but you can't solve them all at once. And so when you work for successful companies, startup companies, et cetera, what you see is that, oh, there are certain problems that happen that are actually, I don't want to call them good problems to have, but they aren't inhibitors to success. They're not the ones you need to focus on in the early days. And so now that I have that experience, I like to think that as an investor, I add value, right? Like, so if you talk to the founders who work with me, I don't think I add value on everything, but I've actually raised money before. I've worked with venture capitalists. I've had to come up with pricing and product. I know how to do difficult rollouts. And so um, having that playbook, I like to think means that the best founders who are really high quality, who could raise money from a lot of people. They can raise money from the Mark Andreessen's of the world, the Reed Hoffman's of the world, you know, the, the, the best venture capitalists. Um, but they want me involved. Why? Because I have some experience and capabilities that they find valuable and they think will increase the likelihood of success of their company. And I love that win-win, right? For me as an investor, um, I want to be with founders who look at raising money as a bit of a hiring opportunity. Like how do they make their team stronger? How do they get more resources to make their company successful? Because I want founders who want to make their companies really successful. Mm -hmm. And I think as a founder, you want investors who aren't going to make your life difficult, who aren't every day going like this. When am I getting my return? When am I getting my X percent? Um, why aren't you doing X? I, I, all I can read right now online is everyone's doing AI. Why aren't you doing AI everything? Um, I've been there and I've been with those type of investors. They can be draining. They can make it harder yeah. to build a business. Um, and so anyway, that's how I've modeled my investing. But let's be clear, that's not my day job, right? Like most of my time is focused on what I do. And what I'm doing right now is, is building a company, building an organization called Daffy. So let's talk a little bit about Daffy. How did this all come about, right? You've got plenty of money. You've got plenty of opportunities. You've got plenty of stimulation sitting on boards and you know, investing in all different types of businesses and people. Why Daffy? Well, it's flattering, but um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a good point that I asked myself that same question. Actually, I wrote a post about this um, a few years ago when I left Dropbox um, about starting a company and why I was doing it. Um, 
I think that's a very important decision because, like I said, you have to have some humility. Like you, you really believe that you've come up with an idea and a business where you're going to go out there and ask people for millions of dollars, and you're going to ask people to spend years of their life building a product, building a service. You, you think you've come up with that idea, and so there's, 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 um, it, it's hard to get there. For me, it took a lot of time. I think the idea behind Daffy, I think I first had some version of it um, in 2017 when I was at Greylock as an executive in residence and, and, and noodling. I had this list of ideas, all these startup ideas. I had 82 ideas on this oh, wow. Google Doc. Yeah, they, they were not all good, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but there was this list of ideas of financial products that hadn't been reinvented yet, despite over a decade of fintech. And I had this one there that was about donor advised funds, which is, of course, DAFI stands for the donor advised fund for you, where a simple app that makes it very easy to put money aside for charity and just make giving something that you do regularly um, by yourself or with your family. Um, and we do all the great stuff around taxes, et cetera, and we help people save money, et cetera. But, um, but back to the original idea, I couldn't figure out how to build it into a real business, into a sustainable organization. But I'd been fortunate. I'd been on the board of this company called Acorns, which has done wonderful things, helping millions of people. Simple app, round up your spare change. How hard is that? And yet yep. now there are millions of people who pay them a subscription fee every month to help them improve their financial lives, to help them save, to help them get to where they want to be, to kind of uplift themselves financially. And I said, well, if Acorns can do that for saving, why can't we do the same thing for giving, right? Giving Americans and the aggregate give, right? You know, somewhere between 50 to 60 million American households give to charity every year. And it's not just something they do. It's a meaningful thing for most of them. They were raised to believe that giving is part of a great life, yeah. of, a, of, a, of, of living the right kind of life. Um, I, I don't know if it was a, a, a priest or a rabbi or a parent or a teacher or an uncle, but almost everyone has someone in their life that they see as a moral authority. Right. When they that little voice in their head, oh, what's good, what's what's bad? Like there's usually someone who's a reflection of that voice in their mm -hmm. head that helps them do the right thing when it's hard. And um, I just really believe that giving is a meaningful piece. And it, it it somehow got missed in this whole fintech boom. Like so many companies, so many apps, so many debit cards, so many investment accounts, brokerage accounts help people save. But so few things, so few investment in, in helping people give. And so I said, listen. The great thing about where I'm in my career is I can get investors to take the risk. I, I do have enough experience to figure out what might be the what's wrong with the current industry, and maybe we can do something different this time. Um, and that's kind of how Daffy was born. It was this idea that, hey, instead of building a giving platform for the ultra wealthy to get tax advantages to put money aside in, in donor advice funds, what if we built a simple app where everyone could put aside $10 a week, $25 a month, end of the year, you had a good year? Maybe you put a little extra aside for charity that year, save money on taxes and benefit yourself. And the more I thought about it, I said, this is something that millions of people could be doing. I think this is something that millions of people should be doing. And can you just imagine how amazing that platform would be if you had millions of people all in this one online community that all had one thing in common is that they thought giving was important enough that they put some money aside for those less fortunate than themselves. It was a problem worth taking on. Um, like I said, you have to have humility. There's a lot of problems you have to solve to do this. But we were able to raise the money. We were able to build the team. We launched the product at the end of 2021. 2022 was a whirlwind. Um, amazing to make sure that we could do this. Got all the regulatory approvals, right? All the registrations. 
But we are now handling millions of dollars coming in and millions more going out to charities all across the country. Um, it's a wonderful thing. It's just it's it's one of those founder experiences where you're you, you don't know what the future holds completely, but you know that it probably wouldn't have happened if you hadn't taken that first step. Yeah. And it's just it's just a wonderful feeling at some level. Makes up for the thousand times where you're trying to solve a problem where you're like, I'm not sure this is <laughs> it's, it's always so hard. But um but it is it, Daffy's been a wonderful thing. And so yeah, we're now in year two of running the platform and, and very excited about it. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. So as a, as a founder, is it going into this, is this a build to sell model? And based on that model, where do you feel like you are percentage wise in that journey? And, and what do you feel like are some of the challenges you guys still need to overcome as the founder of that company? Well, I don't want to sound too pragmatic about this, but the, the truth is I'm not a big believer in the build to sell model. Okay. Like I, I think when founders build to sell, um, it's, it's almost like you miss the fact that really what you're there to build is something valuable. And if you can't build something that's independently valuable, well, you're taking a lot of risk there that someone else is going to solve that problem because in general, people don't run businesses that aren't self-sustainable. I mean, even Stanford, you know, it's a nonprofit university, et cetera, even their organizations, they try to make them self-sustaining. Um, and so in general, with founders, I tend to advise them fundamentally, that you should always be building to build a sustainable organization, something that makes enough money, that has enough customers, that has a viable business by itself. Um, and then you can make decisions. There might be a time where the right thing to do is to sell the company. Maybe it turns out that the best path to achieving your mission, your vision, is to be a part of something bigger, right? And you see many examples of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like companies that become great um, after they're acquired and, and yeah. products and services. I mean, Android was acquired, right? That's on like 80% of the world's phones now. 
I don't think that would have happened necessarily if they hadn't been acquired by Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that you have to be honest about that. But no, I, I don't believe in build to sell. So for Daffy, I believe that one of the fundamental reasons we don't have a large platform company in the giving space. Giving is huge. I mean, this is almost half a trillion a year in the U.S., almost 2% of GDP. It is bigger than agriculture, giving. And yet, where's the giant company? Where's the giant platform? Where are these giant services that help people give? Um, I think the problem is we've had maybe too many founders who thought Mm. they had a clever idea, a feature they wanted to see, but they weren't building a sustainable organization. And so at Daffy, my big focus is like people who give, you know, we're signing up members who are in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. I hope that they'll make giving a part of their life for the next 50 years. But that doesn't work if we don't build an organization that is sustainable for that length of time. And so that tends to be where my head is at. But I I will admit that's not as sexy and, you know, shoot the moon as as some people. It's very pragmatic, but it's, it's what I believe in terms of building businesses. Well, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer that to that question, right? If anything, it's more seeing the vision for Daffy through the paradigm of the founder and and what it means to you. And I think there are a lot of people that, you know, that resonates with, right? And obviously creating an ecosystem and a space that aligns with either solving those problems or making it very easy for people to achieve those goals, especially with how big that marketplace is. I think Daffy's got an exciting future. What is the next biggest hurdle that you feel like as an organization you guys are working on solving and you know what does that require of you as the leader as the visionary of the organization well i think there's always a stress and strain there's always a tension at every startup um, between kind of what i'll call as the product work usually people who are working in a new area they want to innovate they want to come up with new features and we are in an area where there is almost a desperation for innovation and and new capabilities. And so we we really, I mean, like we we spend a lot of time thinking about what could be in this space because there isn't a lot of innovation from the incumbents. You know, the Fidelities, the Schwabs, the Vanguards, those are great companies, not known for feature innovation. Um, and so, like in the fall, we go like, hey, most people tell us that giving is something they don't just do for themselves, they do it with their parents, they do it with their siblings, they want to influence their kids. Mm-hmm. And we're like, every tech product has a family plan. No donor advised fund does, really? In 2023, no one has a donor advised fund that has a family plan. So we roll out a feature where you can actually add your your parents, your siblings, your children. My children are all on Daffy with me. Every time my wife and I make a donation to a charity, they get an alert on their phones. And at dinner, they can ask, like, oh, I didn't know that we supported the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Why do we do that? Like, why don't we do this? Or... Oh, I saw how long have we been supporting, you know, the local community center or other things. I didn't know we were doing that. And it sparks these conversations. So innovation is a big piece of it. Love that. But let's also be clear. The second big problem startups have is just distribution. It's just the fact that no one knows you exist. I tell the whole company every week, all hands. It's like, you know, our biggest problem is that I don't worry about Daffy being a great idea. The people who are using Daffy today, we have so many evangelists. People really love just having one place to do their giving to find charities to give to, to follow other people, see what they're giving to. Um, It fills a missing hole in their life. Um, No one likes searching their Gmail every year at the end of the year for their tax receipts. Like it's it's so much better once you have it, but how does anyone know that Daffy exists? And so we spent a lot of time. One of the reasons we rolled out our platform a few weeks ago um, 
is that we said, you know what, maybe the way that a lot of people will discover this great platform for giving is they're already using a fintech application. Mm -hmm. But those applications don't have giving built in. They can use Daffy APIs to add giving to their applications, right? Your brokerage can make it easy to donate stock. Your crypto app can make it easy to donate crypto, right? Your banking app can make it easy to donate cash. Um, and if they don't want to build it, we we already built it and we yeah. can integrate with them. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we get the word out? How do we empower our members, our users to tell other people about their Daffy experience? Um, because a lot of people give for different reasons. Some people love to give anonymously. They they think the highest form of giving is when they don't get credit for it. Mm. And there's yeah. other people who believe that part of the value of me giving is not just talking about it but it's actually the action. And if I give and other people see me give, that will inspire others to give. Yep. And we'll send a signal that I'm the type of person who gives and you can be too. And so a lot of what we spend time on at Daffy is just thinking about all the places in life that people think about giving that they could give and finding ways to solve their real problems. And so, like I said, um, you know, the feature all over the place, but we've been very proud of, of the innovation that we've had so far um, even though probably our biggest innovation, it sounds so silly, is that we just changed the business model completely. You know, every other donor advised one out there, the way they make money is they charge you a fee on the percentage of assets. Yep. Right. And this is actually, I think, where a lot of the problems in the industry come from is that, like, you know, Fidelity has a $100,000 account and you decide to give $10,000 to your church. Guess what? Their revenue just went down 10, 000, by 10%. So I'm not saying they work against it. They're just not really incented to help you that right. much, give the money. We modeled our business off people instead of dollars. And so we just charge a membership fee. Yep. It's like a lot of nonprofits, community yeah, centers, right. the zoo, et cetera. Um, you know, people pay, you know, we're free for under $100. But most of our members just pay $3 a month. And then we have higher tiers for people who want their families involved or they want to donate a lot of stock or crypto, right? So if you want to, we now have accounts over $10 million at Daffy. Um, and we have accounts that are under $100 and everything in between. Um, but that just comes from the fact that like as a startup, you have to always be balanced between these two problems of innovating on the product side and then making sure you get the word out about your new application, your new service. I want to make sure that everybody knows we'll have all of the the links to Daffy in the show notes, millionermindcast.com on uh, Adam's episode. That being said, Adam, I want to pivot a little bit more towards the personal finance side, being that sure. this is something that you're passionate about, that you're teaching on. What led you to teaching at Stanford? How did that all come about? And really, what are you know some of the core focuses in your perspective around your curriculum that really a lot of people are missing or or should be sharpening their axe on in terms of financial literacy? Well, you have to remember, I've been fortunate enough to go to some of the best schools in the world, right? I did my, you know, you know, schools like Stanford and Harvard, et cetera, no shortage of smart people, no shortage of successful yeah. people, earned or unearned, but it's rounded. And what I learned very early is that our system is broken when it comes to teaching people about money. I don't think it's a college agree. thing. I think every middle school should be teaching kids the yeah. basics of personal finance, high school. In fact, my course at Stanford, I've opened up material. If you go to cs007.blog, you will find all the course material for the class I've taught at Stanford for the last six years for free. Love it. 
And I've had teachers at other schools, high schools, colleges, reach out, can I use your material to teach a class here? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. We need this everywhere. Agreed. Because it's not about IQ. This is not an intelligence thing. I've dealt with people who have 160 IQs, but don't understand a credit score. Yep. Or how mortgages work or how to think about buying a car. And so um, I started the class because frankly, it wasn't there when I went to school. And when I rose up through industry, I started giving these informal seminars you know, to my team, became a manager, became a director, executive. I gave HR a little heartburn. They don't, companies don't always like talking about money. Um, and then when LinkedIn went public a few weeks before, I gave a talk to the entire organization, over 800 people called Personal Finance for Engineers, where I walked through these basics of emotions around money, how to think about money, et cetera. And that talk was so popular, I ended up giving it at Facebook before they went public, Twitter. I, I've done over 100 companies. And it got to such a level where I said, hey, maybe this should be a class. Maybe I'm ready to turn it into a class. And so that's how that happened. Very cool. But um, yeah, my philosophy, like, and I will tell you, this is from the perspective of dealing with a lot of people who on paper are very, very intelligent. Yep. And saying that actually very intelligent people, money is one of the few areas where intelligence can work against you as much as it works for you. Mm. Because smart people have a liability is that we tend to make decisions first and then we rationalize them second. And the smarter you are, the more you can rationalize any decision you've already made. Yeah. When that that's funny enough or obnoxious enough in personal dealings, and we've mm -hmm. all dealt with people like this. Um, but when it comes to money, it's actually very dangerous, right? Like you get an idea in your head, confirmation bias sets in. You only look at material that agrees with you. Yep. You 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 push back almost from a power perspective on people. And so a lot of what I teach are just the basics, the idea of just making sure that one. You know what you're making for a living. Like you, you are delivering value. You have a career. You have income. Making sure you spend less than you make. So you actually have some capital to invest. Understanding that investing is a long-term thing, not a short-term thing. That it's built yeah. over decades and not years. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? This is, a, this is brushing your teeth, right? Like this is... This is not like winning the lottery. Yep. And then lastly, I do talk a lot about taxes and about the the incentives in the system. Um, and that in the end, how does it all fit together to kind of build the life that you want to build? So anyway, I'm very passionate about these topics. And I love it. it's a way of me giving back. You know, the class has become very popular and large. I mean, last last year, we had over 250 students in the class. It's now gone to. Um, I've now taught thousands. But, um, but for and me... And that link is again... Oh, uh, cs007.blog. Yeah, so if you guys want to get uh, personal finance education from a Stanford-level professor, Mr. Adam is generously giving you access and insight to that. So we'll be sure to link that up. I want to finish on this question, Adam. What what does wealth mean to you? Like, what, what is real success and being wealthy in your perspective, from your definition, what does that mean to you? It's interesting to say that for me, it's very wrapped up in the life you want to lead, right? So I, I think that for a lot of us, if we really think about it, if we're intentional about what we do, um, we only have so many years on this planet, right? What yeah. life do you want to lead? Um, Clay used to talk about, you know, you know, how will you measure your life? Really? really thinking deeply about, you know, thinking backwards, like what are you going to really value and make sure that you're prioritizing those things. And we live in a world, we live in an economy where money does affect those things, the risks yeah. you take, 
um, how much you can help your loved ones in different situations, how you can help yourself. And there are patterns of success. And so for me, wealth um, is that alignment. Um, I, I remember back in the day, people would try to define wealth academics. They'll say like, maybe wealth is having 10 times your income. Maybe wealth is that you could replace your income yep. you know, without working. There's all these things. I think that misses the point. Like to me, there's this thing where wealth is this combination of a mindset of intentionality around the life you want to live and then having the resources to live that life. Mm. Um, and the reason I, I think it's both sides of that equation, it's not just the money, it's also your mindset, is unfortunately human imagination seems to be unbound. And so if you imagine a life where it would take a trillion dollars to make you happy, odds are you're not gonna be happy. Right. So these old fashioned advice about, you know, appreciating what you have, um, living every day, um, understanding that value doesn't just come from how much something costs. The I will tell you, I've had some very expensive hamburgers and some of them are even pretty good. They're not always the best hamburgers. Right. Yeah. And so really focus for me, family is very important. Some of my top priorities, making sure that I provide for my children, for my family, even, you know, broader, you know, helping to bring together my siblings, my parents, that sort of thing. I spend money on these things because they bring me joy and I think yeah. they're meaningful. Um, so wealth to me is having enough resources, money, not just income, but a lifestyle that supports this life that you want to live. And usually when I talk to people about money very quickly, we're not talking about money. Yep. We're talking about the why. Yeah. Why do you want that money? Why do you want to be a millionaire? Why do you want to be a billionaire? Sometimes there's great reasons, but for a lot of people, they're like, I'll win the game first, and then I'll figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. That pattern doesn't seem to work. Yeah. At least most of my observation is it's certainly not the one that I live by. I love that answer. And I know a lot of people have enjoyed listening to your insights and what you've shared today. And they're probably going to want to check out Daffy. They're going to want to maybe follow you. They're going to want to go check out your teachings. What's the best place for them to do that? Well, listen, Daffy's easy. It's just daffy.org. Um, come in, uh, et cetera. We'll try and get a link for your, your audience so they can actually get $25. We, we give as an extra bonus. We, we really believe that once you start using it to give, you won't stop. And so we give new members $25 to give to the charity of their choice. And so Love that's it. a nice thing you can do for an organization that you or your listeners support. Um, I already talked about my, my Stanford course is cs007.blog. And then it turns out I'm actually old enough that I'm basically Adam Nash on all the platforms. So Love it. follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn or like wherever uh, I'm there. Um, but feel free um, to follow me, whatever's comfortable. But yeah, definitely, um, if you want to see my writings, et cetera, um, you can follow me on social media. And of course, Daffy.org puts out great material every week. Yes, you guys do. We'll be sure to link up all that millionermindcast.com on Adam's episode. Adam, I just want to appreciate you, man, for all of the work that you've done, all the work you're doing, and honestly, all of the insights uh, and perspectives that you're sharing with so many people and the ripple effect that you're having, especially on our Millionaire Mindcast family here today. So thank you for coming on the show, Adam Nash. Yeah, Matthew, thanks for having me. It was great. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you take two minutes and leave a review in iTunes, where by doing so, you're also gonna get entered in to win a $100 gift card. Don't forget to share this episode out with somebody else that may need to hear it or may get some value from what was talked about in today's interview. And for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey, you want to unlock more financial freedom, you want to get more time back, or maybe you just want to level up your life, your business, your finances, 
Be sure to head over to MillionaireMindcast.com and check out all the amazing products and resources that we have for our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, mastermind events, downloads and checklists, the Rich Life Planner for those of you looking to take your goal setting and productivity to the next level. We've got all kinds of great, valuable tools. So be sure to check those out at MillionaireMindcast.com. And last but not least, If you're not on my weekly text letter and you want to be the first to know of exclusive updates and offers in addition to behind-the-scenes access to a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, that I'm investing in, be sure to join by texting the word NOTES to 844-447-1555. With that being said, thanks for listening today. Until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your march to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friends. Cheers.